Today, my guest is Professor Robert Haskison. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Bob as a person. Professor Haskison is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Askison is a fellow of the Academy of Management, a fellow of the SMS, and a charter member of AMJ's Hall of Fame. He has served as the president, president-elect, and past president of the Strategic Management Society. Bob has written more than 100 peer-reviewed journal articles, 34 books, 27 chapters, many book reviews, proceedings, and edited book series. He has served on at least 31 dissertation committees, most of them as a chair, has received many best paper awards, ranked 13th most highly cited management scholar in the past three decades, and recognized by the Times Higher Education as one of the top 25 scholars worldwide in business and economics. He is also ranked ninth for publishing in the top macro organization studies journals, such as AMJ, AMR, ASQ, SMJ, and OrgScience. Bob has served as associate editor, consulting editor, guest editor, or special issue editor at all of our top journals, such as JIPS, SMJ, AMJ, Journal of Management, Asia Pacific Journal of Management, Management and Organization Review, Journal of Management Studies, ETP, and org science, and etc. Thank you, Bob, for joining us. Thank you. <clears throat> First question, what did you want to become when you were a child? <laughs> you know, the first thing I can remember um, was that like in junior high school, I thought about being an accountant, you know, because it was a steady job, steady income. Um, and exciting. Yeah, <laughs> not very exciting, but uh, that's what I, that's what I thought, you know, thought about being an accountant. Um, Where did you grow up? What's that? Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, my uh, family had a small corner grocery store called Hoskison's Market. My dad was a butcher. Um, there were four siblings. My mom was trained as an RN, registered nurse. And so I, I had to learn to work early on. My brother and I switched off going to work in the grocery store after school, you know, when I started to be 12, 13, 14. So, and then all day on Saturdays. Perfect. And how do you choose academia? <laughs> um, you know, I just had a desire to get my education. Um, you know, growing up um, in a working family, I, I just felt like um, getting my education would be a way to advance myself. So I got a bachelor's, master's, and I worked for three years and I decided to get a PhD and I really wasn't sure why. Uh, and once I got it, I realized I was going to have to write to be successful. And I, I, I wondered what I got myself into because I didn't feel that I, I felt it was really a weakness. <laughs> Writing? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. How did you learn? How did you learn to write so beautifully? Well, um, 
you know, I'm not sure. I just uh, just kept after it. Um, and sometimes I'd get these strokes of ideas that uh, I remember as a doctoral student, I I um, I wrote this philosophical. I was studying philosophy of science and um, looked at determinism versus you know environmental determinism versus like the resource-based view, and it turned out to be like seventy-eight pages. I just you know, and then I had to put it away so I could stay away from it. Interestingly, that article turned into an article later called Swings of a Pendulum about yeah. the history of the field of strategic management published in journal management. But that was kind of the origin was as a doctoral student. I'm not sure where it came from. I mean, um, it's just uh, somehow it's a gift that I didn't know I had. Do you write every day? Do I write every day? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't as a young man, um, but yeah, most every day I, I write. Perfect. Um, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. <laughs> um, you know, when I first started college, um, I had a friend who rode a bicycle across the country. So I, um, I worked on a scout camp one summer and then my uncle called me up. He just graduated from Berkeley, uh, got a job at Virginia Tech on the other side of the country in Blacksburg, Virginia. And he asked me to drive his U-Haul truck to Blacksburg, Virginia. So I did that. And then I hitchhiked to Washington, D.C., stayed with a friend, um, bought a bicycle there, uh, a Swin Super Sport, 10 speed, and rode it home back to Salt Lake City. So 2,500 miles, I rode a bicycle across the country by myself. So that's probably not widely known. <laughs> How long did it take? How long did it take for you to get back to Utah? It took me 30 days and 25 pedaling. <laughs> I averaged about 100 miles a day. Um, you know, one of the things if you know, you're stupid and young is you don't realize about geography. And so <laughs> I left Washington, D.C. and realized that I was in the mountains there. You got to cross the mountains to get, you know, to the Midwest. And I about killed myself just up and down, up and down. <laughs> You know, you feel every hill on a bicycle, and I wasn't in shape to do that. But, you know, so I was making maybe 50 miles a day, uh, and I followed old Route 40. Um, you know, I went to Washington, Pennsylvania, Cumberland, Washington, and then Wheeling, West Virginia, and across Ohio, Painesville, Columbus, etc. Um, I stayed in jail in Illinois one night. <laughs> What did you do? What's that? What did you do? Oh, I, I, I called, I, I was trying to get to uh, Decatur, Illinois from Indianapolis and I couldn't make it. it was too far. So I stopped in this small town called Tuscola, Illinois. I pulled up to the Dairy Queen and ate a hamburger and the deputy sheriff pulls up next to me and starts talking to me. And I says, well, hey, well, do you have any place 
you know, somebody like me could stay like Salvation Army. He said, oh, no, we don't have any of that. Then he said, sometimes the sheriff will let people stay in the jail overnight. <laughs> so I pedaled over the jail. Sure enough, he, you know, had to take my belt off my wallet and they put it all in an envelope and put me in the cell with a guy who was in there on a marijuana charge. And that's where I slept all night until the next morning. <laughs> Well, uh, I'm afraid to ask this one. Uh, regrets. Have you got any regrets? <laughs> Say what again? Regrets. Uh, is there one thing you wish you would have done or done differently? Mm. You know, um, I wish I had been an editor, uh, a journal. I mean, I, I, had, I was an associate editor, uh, you know, at three different journals. And, you know, I made a lot of decisions. I think I was an associate editor at SMJ for 10 years. But I was also president at the time, too. And um, when the editorship came up, uh, I didn't, I, I was chairing the, the publications committee, so I couldn't, I couldn't really nominate myself. So I just um, never was actually the editor of a journal and um, always wanted to do that, but was the circumstances were never right, I guess. Okay. And uh, what are you most passionate about? You know, I think I'm probably, in my research, I'm probably most passionate about um, incentives uh, that people have. And um, um, governance, how firms are governed and what shapes the, the, strategic decisions, including, you know, IB decisions that uh, executives make. Um, I've been very interested with control systems how, and how that influences strategic decisions. So I'm probably most passionate about that. And I think also that has really influenced my career because I think it's led into a lot of counterintuitive ideas that, um, that have allowed me to make my way successfully. Bob, let's say you're 21, 22 again, and you can do it all over. Uh, what is the best career path that you would take? What's the uh, life that you would, uh, you would choose for yourself? Knowing well, now. It, yeah, so, <clears throat> so my undergraduate work was, um, in youth leadership. Um, and and I, I had degrees in uh, um, minors in sociology and Italian. That might seem to a little, sound a little strange, but, um, but the, the part of the program I was in was in outdoor survival. It's kind of like um, outward bounds program. So we take these people out for 30 days at a time. So I would probably be a trail guide someplace. Uh, and I realized, you know, with the number of children we had that there was no way I was gonna make any money doing that. But I mean, I go back, the, the way that carries over today is I go backpacking every year, you know, like doing crazy stuff like, you know, riding a bicycle across the country. I really like the outdoors. Interesting. And uh, what are you most proud of? You know, 
academically, I think I'm probably most proud of uh, the special issue at AMJ on uh, strategy and emerging economies. I think it's probably had the most influence of any article in my career. And um, the lead article that we put together um, really has been cited a ton. I think there's like over 4,600 citations now. Um, but it's interesting, Ann Sui was the editor at the time and I was in Hong Kong and visited her and talked to her about doing this special issue. And um, she was all excited about it um, and uh, turned out really successful. Perfect. Uh, well, Bob, uh, you're riding your bicycle across the country and you're stranded <laughs> in a small village and the locals don't know anything about you. They're curious. They're curious why you're riding the bike in the first place. <laughs> but uh, they ask you, uh, how do you explain your research to laymen, people who don't read AMJ, SMJ? And mm -hmm. how do you explain the importance of your research to them? You know, um, I, I, this is not an IB example. I'm, I, you can excuse me for that, hopefully, but I'm, I often, when I, in answer to that question, I'll talk about some IPO research that I did. Mm. Um, if you think about IPOs, um, the offerings are often on average 12 to 15% undervalued. Um, so think about all the IPOs that have ever been given, you know, put out. And that means that 12 to 15% of the capital available is not available to the firm. <laughs> That's a huge amount of money. And where does that money go? I mean, it goes mostly to institutional investors who are really the customers of investor banks, uh, you know, and, and um, I mean, that's really an important question. And so one article I wrote, um, co-authored um, at AMJ, asked the question, how do you prevent under, uh, under investment like that? Uh, you know, how do you get more investment on the table for the firm? And um, I, I find that a lot of my research asks questions like that, right? So what are the governance items that will prevent underpricing? Um, I mean, you know, it's an academic question, but it's also an important, relevant question about how we use uh, our investment dollars and who gets it, right? Um, and there's lots of explanations for that. But anyway, that's, I'm sorry, it's not an IB example, but that's probably the one I would bring up because it's so readily apparent. So the question is, <clears throat> how do you come up with these creative ideas, this but my question normally is in a state of idle curiosity, what does your mind think of? But uh, let me reword it. How do you come up with these type of interesting uh, puzzles? Uh, what leads to coming up with these uh, interesting venues for, for research? You know, I, I find that I, um, you know, there's lots of ways. I, I have really, I've, I've been fortunate. You mentioned a, a lot of the doctoral students. Uh, I've been fortunate to help them, right? And uh, in the process, 
you know, we come up with really interesting questions. I always seek to find something that's counterintuitive and help them do that. Um, and then um, if you look at some of the basic questions like um, how does, you know, international diversification influence performance. I mean, how off, how much has that been studied, right, in the literature? Or product diversification. How often has product diversification been studied and in relationship to performance? But what's the downside of product diversification, you know? Um, so if you start out with some of the basic questions and then you ask an ancillary question. Um, so for instance, um, Charles Hill, um, I met Charles in a conference in Pittsburgh, an SMS conference actually. And, um, you know, I found that we had a lot in common in regard to studying the multidivisional form. Um, and, you know, there came a slot up at Texas A&M, so I, went to the department head, hey, we need to fill this slot. Why don't we ask Charles Hill to come as a visiting professor for a year? Uh, and he came and um, we started doing this research and, um, and we found that the M form and diversification had a huge downside um, in that um, it led to uh, managers using these strong financial control incentives because when you get so broadly diversified, you can't understand um, the investments you're making. So you do it by the numbers, right? And that led to a short-term focus and re reduction in R&D expenditures. Uh, and we claimed at the time that that was really the Achilles heel of the M form. There's an incentive to continue to diversify because it raises manager salary, but at the same time, they, the firm becomes less competitive because they're not investing for the long term because there's the time horizon is shortened. Um, and so, you know, one thing just leads to another and then you keep asking questions, right? And can that reverse if you, you know, reduce diversification? And in fact, it does, you know, so um, you get into a stream like that, and that, that was kind of my tenure stream, actually. Um, and at the time, mid-80s, there was a huge amount of restructuring going on after um, Reagan changed the incentives, basically. Um, anyway, it's, it's just one thing leads to another. Um, and do, do acquisitions influence? Do divestitures influence it? Um, in fact, at the, at the end of that, uh, Mike Hitt and I wrote a book called um, Downscoping, How to Tame the Diversified Firm. It's published with Oxford University Press. And that's kind of a summary of my tenure work, basically. Uh, you, you mentioned some uh, counterintuitives. Uh, obviously, these are superbly uh, interesting. About understudied areas in in research, in strategy, international business, international strategy, international entrepreneurship. What are some of the, uh, in your opinion, some of the understudied, underutilized uh, areas that we should be thinking more of? Well, I'm gonna give you a, an analogy here. So I had 
two, my younger two sons uh, lived in the same bedroom their whole life, basically. Um, and I thought I understood them. And then when the older children moved out and they got their separate bedrooms, uh, their bedroom when they were together was always messy. <laughs> I mean, it was just always messy. And when the younger son moved to his own bedroom, the mess stayed with the older child and the younger child was neat as a pin, you know, and I never knew it because he was always in his brother's mess. Um, so sometimes I think in research, we have the same issue, right? Most of the research in international business, I think, for instance, originally, traditionally has come from developed firms, right? From the UK, from the US and maybe Japan. Um, but more recently, as we have seen um, China emerge, India, Korea, um, you get to see what I would say is uh, some new light. You know, it's kind of like my younger son moving out and, oh, I didn't notice that. So I did a study with um, a doctoral student about international diversification from Korea. And um, if you think about Korea, it's kind of in the middle, right? So you have highly developed countries and less developed countries. I mean, Korea is kind of in the middle. Um, so with that study, what we did is we created two international diversification indexes, international diversification index into countries that were more developed than you institutionally in factor markets and into countries that were less developed than Korea um, as far as factor markets and, uh, and institutions. And so we created two indexes, not one, right? <laughs> um, of international diversification. And we had hypotheses that suggested that um, if you go into more developed countries it's, you're gonna have this downward slope and then an upward slope in regard to performance as you learn how to navigate your way in an institutional environment and you know, with companies that have better factor markets than you do. Um, whereas if you go to a less developed country than you, then you have better factor markets and better institutions than they do. And so there's this positive trend right away. Um, so there's learning going on when you go to countries that are more developed than you, but you have an automatic advantage when you go to countries that are less developed than you. Um, given your, your current institutional and factor market environment. And um, it, it just, and if you think about the relation, there's not just a single relationship with interna international diversification performance, there's multiple relationships depending on how you configure um, your, you know, your host countries. And I really think I, I, that's a 2015 SMJ study that I think is really creative in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But it um, comes from that different context, right? Sure. About the evolution of the field uh, from your window, uh, what can you say about the culture of scholarship uh, over time? Well, you know, uh, uh, coming into, um, into the IB area, I think um, 
you know, I'm, I'm traditionally more of a strategy guy, you know, as president of Strategic Management Society. I started going to AIB though, um, because they were going to really cool places. <laughs> they were going to Banff in Canada. They were going to Maui in Hawaii. And so, I mean, I went to almost, you know, all these great places uh, and met a lot of really interesting people. I, I, one time I was making a presentation and I don't mean this negatively. Um, and I was talking about international diversification and Alan Rugman uh, stood up and raked me over the coals by the way I was defining international diversification. And there was a big audience, you know, you know how Alan could do it. <laughs> I really love Alan, but you know, I, you know, I thought it was, you know, a little out of place, but he, he defined international diversification different, a little differently than I do, I think. He had written some articles and books about how international diversification is really a, um, it's more of a financial term rather than a strategy term where you're going across borders, right? Anyway, uh, and so I, I thought about that. And one of the things I thought about is that maybe uh, IB has, is a little insular. Um, they're not really insular. In, I mean, IB is like strategy, very interdisciplinary, right? I mean, you allow accountants, people, accountants, finance guys, economists, OB people, strategy people all come to the meetings. So the meetings are really great, but I think sometimes there's, um, there's a, um, an insularity to it where if you don't cite um, Dunning or some of the other people, who's the other guy that was more of a transaction cost economist than um, Williamson? Anyway, if you don't cite the right people, then um, it's kind of, it, 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 it makes, um, and I think it's gotten better over time, but I, it was back, back then a little insular and I thought, you know, that that really could be holding the field back a little bit, that attitude, that culture. Um, and I think the culture should be, you know, making a solid theoretical contribution such that you're having this conversation with economics, with strategy, with finance, with accounting. So you're having this great conversation. Rather than preventing people, you're having a conversation. And with that conversation, you're being cited by the accountants, you're being cited by the finance guys, you're being cited by the strategy people. And I think, you know, the strategy people really do cite, you know, I, I know I do. Um, but I think you can have a broader influence by having this stronger conversation and seeking to make a contribution to these base disciplines, uh, rather than just you know, referring to the historians or the people associated with AIB, the his, historical people, you know, trying so that I think by doing this, then um, the, the citations would be um, much stronger and more, more heavily cited by other disciplines. You know, I, I don't know if anybody can get finance, the finance journals to cite site outside of their journals. <laughs> uh, 
But I think um, by doing that, if, if people are citing Jib's research and all these other fields with it, once this conversation begins, I really think that creates a stronger influence for the IB field than being having a tendency to be a little insular. Thank you. Uh, Bob, uh, who, who was your advisor or mentor when you were going through the PhD program? You know, I went to a school, I went to UC Irvine, and um, I picked a guy as my chair, probably people don't recognize him. His name is Newton Margulies. Um, he just treated me re really well. Uh, Lyman Porter was on my committee. Um, he was dean at the time. Of course, he's well-known OB guy. And I, my master's degree was in organizational behavior. But I, I really decided in my dissertation that I was macro. Uh, so I had an org change guy. Newt Margulies was really an org change guy. Um, uh, but then I had a guy named Craig Galbraith. And I published one article, one article with him off my dissertation in journal management. It's like my first article. But Craig really had a big influence on me. He was a student of Dan Shandell at Purdue. Hmm. And he really, even though he was a junior faculty member, he was really the, the strongest influence in, in the committee. Porter really helped with the writing and Newt just held my hand and helped me you know, get through the process. Um, but Craig Galbraith really had a strong influence you know, in the training he received at Purdue. What was the best advice you received from them? <clears throat> from them? Yeah. Um, you know, Lyman Porter was, um, um, was a journalist as an undergrad. I mean, he took journalism as an undergrad work. And so he was a really good writer. And he brought out two dissertations. Um, one was Rick Mowdy's and one was Rick Steers. Two, two guys that were president of, and they're both EOB guys, they were both presidents of the academy. And he says, you can write a dissertation as good as this, these two, then um, you'll probably do okay. I don't think he thought I was going to do okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. Um, I, I, you know, one of the best people who helped me um, once I got to A&M, I had really good mentors there. It was a really great program. It was uh, Dick Daft. And at the time he was um, associate editor at ASQ and I, was, I had this revise and resubmit. And I brought in my response to the reviewers and he says, oh man, this is just crap. You know, you, you have to have a conversation, you know, an intellectual conversation with these guys. If you think it's wrong, just tell them upfront what it is. And, um, and then tell them what you did and be specific what you do. And, uh, and then I, I brought, bring it back after he edited it and, and he helped me through a couple of times. And I think that was probably one of the most useful things ever in responding to learning how to respond to reviewers. Uh, uh, Bob, uh, in your experience, um, looking back, uh, you've seen many junior faculty, many PhD students. Uh, what, what are some of the common mistakes that uh, young colleagues uh, are uh, suffering from and what is your advice to them for uh, what to do, what not to do? You know, I think 
Um, I mean, I'm sure people have said this before, but I think uh, rewriting and rewriting your introduction and, and getting the question right um, and helping people understand what your contribution is right from the get-go is really important. And then keeping it simple um, uh, as far as not having too many hypotheses, making a clear incremental contribution, um, and then having methods that clearly show your results um, and not making it too messy. So I think really simplicity, but you know, clear question with a strong answer, both theoretically and empirically. Um, and then I, I think you have to have an attitude. People give up too easy. You know, when I'm talking about this stuff, I, I go to, I open the door to the outside of the room and I put my foot in the door and then I kind of try to close the door on my foot. And I, you know, you got your foot in the door when you get a revise and resubmit. You just need to keep after it, right? Until you get a success. Uh, so you can't give up. Um, and you need to feel like even, even the worst review, uh, to me it became, it's kind of my art, right? Okay, this guy, I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn him around or her around. You never know whether it's male or female, right? But, um, you know, by responding, how you respond and uh, what you do in the article. Um, I, I guess I would say eight times, you know, seven times down, eight times up. <laughs> you just keep after it. I mean, if I, if I, I've got four walls in here. If I, I, I could probably, I could probably wallpaper the whole, all four walls with rejection letters. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes you get rejected five or six times when, you know, the seventh is good. I'm not sure I've ever had an article that I've given up on. It's probably not a, a good attribute. <laughs> There's probably some of them I should have given up on, but I just have this attitude that if I'm going to spend my time on it, it's got to see the light of day in, the, in a journal or someplace. Maybe a book article, even. Which article, uh, which of your work made you work the most and took the longest to come out? Which paper <laughs> was that? Well, I'll tell you a story that <clears throat> I'm not sure it took the longest, but it was the most discouraging. Um, so, <clears throat> and I, this, this should give hope. <laughs> when I was a doctoral student, I studied um, the M-form hypothesis, meaning Williamson's, um, that the multivisional structure was more efficient than the U-form structure, the unitary form, which is the functional form. <clears throat> and I set out to prove that it was efficient, right? And that was my dissertation. I studied Chandler's firms that had historically gone, and I did a time series, um, you know, like a 60-year time series, and I did the M-form as kind of an intervention in this. 
ARIMA model. <clears throat> and then once I got to AM, my first job, Texas AM, I had a student help me collect data on a whole bunch more firms that had gone to the M farm. And it took us a year just to collect that data. We hand collected it out of Moody's. You know, this poor doctoral student is getting, you know, allergies from the dust off these tomes. <laughs> and um, I remember doing the first analysis where I had, you know, a large number of firms and I studied 10 years before and 10 years after the intervention of the M-form change. And I was expecting to see something. <clears throat> and my, the main effect on performance was not significant at all. <laughs> I mean, I spent a year doing this uh, and I ran, ran the main effect and there was nothing. I mean, I, I mean, I was so discouraged <clears throat> and uh, I actually felt like, well, you know, 10 years out the window. So I went and interviewed the next year you know, for other jobs, because I didn't, I needed to, I thought I needed to start my tenure clock over. <clears throat> so I've been there two years, second year, you know, anyway. Um, and they turned me down. I didn't get a job offer. <clears throat> so I came back and I looked at the data and I said, well, let's go back and recollect um, how diversification influences uh, this intervention. And so I did an interaction effect between M-form and diversification. Huge significance. <laughs> uh, and that, that led to a sole authored AMJ and I won the best paper award in the um, strategy division uh, that year uh, when it came out. And Charles and I wrote an AMR, Charles Hill and I wrote an AMR, Hill and Hoskisson, 1987 AMR. And that really came from that discovery, that theoretical article. Hmm. And that also led to the M form being um, this Achilles heel with regard to diversification. I had an article with Mike Hitt on, in SMJ, you know, so it led to like, enough articles to get tenure. Um, but it was really, you know, I thought my career was over. <laughs> uh, for the sake of time, a last question. What is a question that I should have asked you about heaven? Mm. Oh boy. I'm not sure. Um, You know, I, I, I would say that, you know, probably the influence of my PhD students has been, um, one of the things I've done in my career is, you know, I've really taken the time to work with students. It's been a, a passion of mine to work with students. And uh, I have learned so much from the great students I've had. Um, and they've taken me into great ideas. Uh, and so I, I have just been blessed to work with really, really good students. Um, and I, you know, I have 
poured my time into that. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it's going to pay off, but I think being kind, um, really being interested in, um, in their welfare, uh, trying to help them with their career. Um, it's been wonderful. And uh, it's nice because they want to continue to work with me, um, even in my old age. <laughs> no, you're not old. Bob, <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for this interview. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. Okay, thank you.